Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, maybe, but probably not your Nigerian prince, right? I mean, we've all figured that out, I think, that the Nigerian prince is not coming. We're going to be talking today about email scams. I do want to say that even though everybody feels pretty hip about the Nigerian prince and very comfortable laughing at the whole thing, these emails don't really stop. I mean, they change form, although I'm always kind of thrilled when I get one that stylistically takes me in a new direction. This is just within the last two weeks I got one that said, Good morning. Hope you are doing well. No, excuse me. Because the wording here, the syntax is important. Good morning. Hope you are doing so well. I need you to help me with a favor, but I am currently unavailable over the phone because I have a ruptured eardrum and the doctor told me to stay away from phone calls for now. Let me know when you get this. Thank you. Um, I like that in particular because the doctor apparently said, don't take any phone calls, even on the non-ruptured eardrum. Why take chances? Um, But, you know, I'm actually, when you get one of the kind of old school ones, a mysterious person in Macau or something and wants to get to know you and romance might be in the air, it makes me nostalgic. I'm I'm glad somebody's still out there trying to do that. But... One thing that we're not going to do today is what I'm doing right now, which is sound very superior to this process. Because, in fact, people get fooled all the time. I've been fooled. I'm going to tell you as we go along here a couple of ways that I've been fooled. Um, and, and we are going to kind of acquaint you with the state of the art right now. No one better to do that than our guest for the first two segments. That would be Arun Vishwanath, cybersecurity expert, author of the book, The Weakest Link. How to Diagnose, Detect, and Defend Users from Phishing. That's phishing with a PH, obviously. Uh, First of all, Arun Vishwanath, welcome to our show. Hey, Colin. It's great to be here. Happy to be here. Um, Maybe just for, you know, for for novices, uh, explain the term phishing, also spear phishing. I'm not quite sure whether there's a meaningful difference between those two terms. Right. And, you know, um, that was a that was a great segue in the beginning when you talked about, uh, you know, the kind of attacks you get. Right. Mm-hmm. Everybody all over the world knows about the Nigerian phishing email. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. I've given presentations all the way from Bali to you know parts of Africa. Everybody's heard it. Everybody's received one. Um, so you have, you know, and, and just so the history of those kind of attacks, they go back even further before the Internet. Right. We go back to postage stamps. That's where, you know, when the they used to make fake postage stamps and mail them out from Nigeria. Um, and then even before that, to the Spanish-American War, and even before that to the French Revolution, people were sending mail letters. Very similar. In fact, you know, I, I found some as I was researching for my book uh, in the New York Times during the Spanish-American War. And if you just took that, the way it was written with typos, and put that against a modern-day email like the one you just received, they're almost identical. 
Oh yeah. So they haven't changed in terms of format, but what they've done is they've changed in terms of modality. So it's coming via email because it's a lot easier and it goes a lot farther. So you know that's your one type of attack, right? So we call those uh, pretexting attacks, right? Because there's the, the, the idea here is to get you to respond. There's some interactivity. There's nothing in the email, nothing that it's carrying other than trying to see, is there a person who opened this email? Because sometimes you can tell at the other end, depending on how the email was formatted. And secondly, is this person going to respond? Um, and uh, some of these things are more sophisticated, but for the most part, those are two things that they're trying to do, right? We call those pretexting attacks or Back in the 70s, we used to call them advanced free frauds, right? You'd give a little bit of money. And then once you gave that money, you were stuck trying to get that money. So you'd give more and more and more. That's your one type of attack. And then the modern version of it, which is what we call when we talk about phishing, we usually talk about this thing called spear phishing. And I like to think of spear phishing as kind of something, an email. It could be an email. It could even be a phone call, you know, in a different way. Uh, it could be an SMS message. It could be a social media attack uh, message. But it carries a payload. And what does that mean? It carries something like a malware. It's got a document that you open and suddenly something opens in the back end. Or it's got a link that sends you to another website that's got some malware that gets into your system. So, so you, you know, these are kind of like your two types of attacks, right? Pretexting, more like the Nigerian phishing. Spear phishing, which is payload attacks. And we call both of them sort of phishing or social engineering. That's the catch-all term. Right. I want to show people how far back, in fact, that particular kind of scam goes, uh, exactly to the point that you were making. Uh, but if anybody have seen, uh, anyone has seen the 1997 movie, uh, The Spanish Prisoner, uh, here's Ed O'Neill. He's playing an FBI team leader describing that particular con. This is A1Cat. It's an interesting setup, Mr. Ross. It is the oldest confidence game on the books. The Spanish Prisoner. So how far back it goes, glory days of Spain. Fellow says him and his sister, wealthy refugees, left a fortune in the home country. He got out. Girl and the money got stuck in Spain. And he needs money to get her and the fortune out. Man who supplies the money gets the fortune and the girl. Oldest con in the world. Intelligent people play on their vanity and greed. And we should also say that whenever new technology comes along, one of the instincts in a certain subset of humankind is to figure out how to hack it. I mean, when in fact there was only one phone company, um, phone hacking and phone freaking, that was also spelled with a PH, that was all the rage because I'm assuming, Arun, just because if it's there, there's a certain kind of person who's going to try to figure out what else you could do with it besides what was intended. Right. Absolutely. There's money to be made doing it. There's money to be saved doing it, which is what the phone freakers used to do. Um, and, you know, invariably, if you look back at the history of these scams, mostly perpetrated by young teenagers, usually, uh, you know, teens have a natural proclivity to not, you know, believing in the system as it stands, the rules based system, they kind of push the boundaries and they're innovative. Uh, they're the first to take to these things. So, you know, every major hack we've seen since Usually, a teenager. Look at the phone freakers. Many of them are young kids who were in, you know, early engineering programs. You look at the earliest hackers; they were people like Bill Gates, who yes. were teens back in the day. Apparently, Steve Wozniak was a phone freaker. Uh, right. So, uh, right. yeah, the, the people who are going to become the titans of the industry. Sure, they're curious. What else can I make it do? How can I make it work? And then the That's next, right. the next question is. How do they make it work so well against us? I mean, it, most of us who work for companies, we go through training, uh, and and most of us have kind of achieved a level of latent default suspicion. 
But I'm going to give a couple of examples of stuff that I, I fell for uh, in just a second. But may, maybe talk a little bit about just why, in general, this kind of stuff is still successful. But, you know, if you go back to the early history of the Internet, one primary reason a lot of this is successful or continues is because we never took it seriously when it happened. <laughs> and we usually don't do right. Even go back to phone freakers. They were not taken seriously until the phone company started losing revenue. They were a monopoly. They didn't need to care about it. When, you know, the Wozniaks and the Bill Gates took to phone freaking and then went on to, you know, hacking, nobody thought much of it. You know, Bill Gates' punishment for stealing basically identity, which is essentially what today's spear phishing does, right? What it does is it steals a password and a login because our entire identity, and we have many online, they're all supposed to be authentic and they're all hidden behind a password and a login. Gates would steal passwords and logins to get access to mainframe computing. What do they do to him? They said, oh, you want to have computing for a week. <laughs> so we ignored it. So when we let it fester, it becomes a problem. And the only difference now is it's a global market. Everybody can do it. Anybody can do it. And there are kids everywhere and adults, opportunists and otherwise, who are taken to it. It's kind of like, you know, the early, you know how the diffusion curve works. You have the innovators are the young teens. And today we're in, you know, the early majority stage where everybody's starting to do it. Nation states do it. Adults do it. Bad guys do it. Even the good guys do it. So, and you do it too, just to test people and to see hmm, how amenable uh, they are to some of this stuff and how vulnerable they are to it. But other people have done the same thing. Uh, I think it was not too long after the 2016 election cycle, in which obviously Hillary Clinton's emails and the server that they were on became a major campaign issue. Gizmodo sent a, a, um, a sort of a non, what they call a non-scientific phishing test uh, to 15 Trump officials. Explain what happened when they did that. Well, you know, and, and this was a very, there's a classic email, which was basically a Google Documents sharing sheet. And essentially, most of the people opened it. And and just to be clear, right, I have done this exact same thing on people in different meetings that I'm in. Of course, people who know or who are part of, you know, who are signed up for this, you don't want to just be out there hacking people. Um, and we see the exact same results, right? People who are in the know, not just politicians, people in security, people who know security. I've done this live where people who know security have fallen for essentially the same kind of hack, which is like the one Gizmodo did, which is it's a Google document share sheet and you just share it with people. All you need to do is change a few things in it. Because again, go back to what I just said earlier, right? Your entire identity, and there are many of them, is built around your name and a login and a password. And those are the easiest things to compromise and the most available things out there because of all the hacks out there on top of it. So, so it's not a surprise, right? Mm -hmm. the, the problem is most of us uh, don't know what we don't know. And, and the internet makes us, and computing as it is, makes us feel like we're more in control than we are. So, uh, and we should say, uh, to the best of our knowledge, at least eight people uh, of the 15 people who got that uh, phishing test, uh, they at least clicked on on the link to the Google document. Two people, Newt Gingrich and former FBI <laughs> Director James Comey, actually responded. They replied uh, to the email. So, uh, so I'm going to give you one that I fell for, and you can kind of analyze me and and uh, talk about how this happened. Um, so. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. Um, so I got an email, and I'm looking at the thing right there. This is two, about two years ago, April of 2021. Um, I got an email from the CEO of this company where I work. Uh, and the subject line was, 
and I should say at noon on a Friday when when this came in, I'm really busy. I'm an hour from doing a live radio show, and I, I like I like everybody else. I just try to move stuff back through the pipeline. So and it's from the CEO, and it says I'm in a meeting. Kindly email. <laughs> <laughs> Kindly email me your cell phone number for an urgent task, and then it's signed by him or you know by him appropriately, and then thanks. Um, <laughs> and so I did. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. So say, I mean, I'm not an idiot. I don't think, but uh, Arun, say, and, and, and this is this happens a lot more. And now this is an example of a very simple pretexting attack, a modern version of it, right? Uh, this happened, remember the Shark Tank CEO had the exact same thing happen to her company, where an email apparently came from her, I, I forget her name, Barbara Cochran, I think, um, went to the IT, the accounting person, and uh, basically she sends an email and asks him to remit, I think, 10 or $20 million to another account, and he does. So these kind of attacks are actually more common, and a lot more people fall for it because of the, of the way in which we communicate. So, so what are the reasons why you fell for it? Right? One of them is just habits, right? We do things more often than not without really giving it much thought. That's how we are programmed as humans. And the internet makes it very easy. Emails make it easy. Social media makes it easy. You know, think about the last time you got a social media request, the most prominent thing on it is to accept the request. Um, Phones make it a lot easier. Every time you see an email, you barely have any information on it other than to respond to it. So a lot of these things are programmed into creating habits that are very strong. And in your case, it's just a pure habit. It's late in the day, cognitively, you're not putting in a lot. You're not putting a lot of effort to think about it. And the most important thing is nothing aroused your suspicion, right? Because suspicion is one of those things, right? When you're suspicious, you start thinking. If it doesn't, habits tend to overwhelm it. You just go out and, and respond to it. And I, I got to tell you, you're not alone, right? <laughs> lots and lots of attacks happen that way, which is why pretexting still works. Okay, I want to ask about a couple more things that happen to people. This one didn't happen to me, but I see it a lot. And I see it a lot these days in particular. Um, and that is the sort of fake person on social media, especially where I see it is Facebook. And so this went to a friend of mine, uh, happened to be on a thread that I was already on. It was from a Megan Nathan. It says, it's Sergeant Megan. Nice to meet you. To a couple of rose emojis and stuff like that. I have been observing some comments lately, and I find you very interesting. And there's some more emojis. Also clever. But I tried sending you a friend request, and I couldn't. I will be glad if you can send me a friend request here on Facebook. I get these things, too. And Arun, it just seems like it's just in front of the crowd, too. It seems, uh, I mean, as a joke, I just sent, I just commented right below it, beware of Sergeant Megan. But, I mean, <laughs> um, it just seems like it yeah. wouldn't work, particularly because right. you have other people saying, no, 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 stupid. It's That's not a real person. So why why is that happening? Well, see, look, so so first is, you know, some of these appear very benign, but they may not be, mm-hmm. right? So back, you know, in during my academic days, we did these um, fake social media phishing attacks. What we did is we created fake profiles uh, during on Facebook and LinkedIn and different media, uh, different social media platforms. And we started sending these kind of requests out. What we found is very quickly, there are a few people who don't care. They're very promiscuous in the type of friend request that they respond to. And very quickly, that so-called fake profile of mine started gaining legitimacy. It starts looking like a real person now because there's lots of people connected to me. And that starts escalating. And now the next person is looking at me as a mutual connection and connecting to them. 
And what we find is, you know, when you start doing this, these things are insidious. They appear very benign, but there's always a few and then it starts picking up steam. And to put this in perspective, uh, you know, so very recently, there were a couple of major hacks on, on MGM, uh, the casino group, um, Caesars. Uh, the MGM, Caesars also had a major ransomware attack. The MGM hack had something to do with, you know, the credentials of the person was found. It was all social engineering. Well, a lot of that information was found on LinkedIn. So what people put out on LinkedIn on social media and what they have on their profile, connecting to them can get you a wealth of information and connecting to somebody who's connected to them is just as good. So we see this being used. It appears very benign on the on the, on the front end of it, but it may not be. So, you know, this is why it's, it's very important. I got to take them a little bit more seriously. Say, oh, you know, when in doubt, delete. I think this is part of the mystery, too, for a lot of us, is what what do they want and what happens if we make a mistake? Okay, so I think a lot of people have gotten an email that has a big, big fat hyperlink in it, and it'll say something, and it'll be maybe from somebody you know, or it looks like it's from somebody you know, and it says, I hope, it'll say something like this. I hope you can still remember a couple of them. Maybe I should have sent them to you a lot sooner. I mean, these two photographs here. And then there's a link. So what happens if someone, I'm not saying I ever did this, <laughs> but, but I'm not saying I never did this. No, the, not at all. The no. first, the, well, what happens the, when you the, click the, that link? What do they want you to do and well, what are they going to get if you do click on, on that link? Well, very often, more, more often than not, you open that page or open some website. There's one of two things. One, it's a watering hole where a watering hole is a site which is collecting data from you without your knowing just because you open the site. It could also, remember how the internet works. Packets are getting switched. They're going back and forth. So what's coming back to you as a page could be malware. Uh, on, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it, the other way these guys do it, is it opens a page that starts, you know, asking you for information like a two-factor authentication code, um, a login and password to something. So it appears like you've got to re-log into a page. It's just another page that looks like a page that you just logged out of. So there's a lot of different things you can do once you send people outside to a website, to any website, uh, ranging from I can steal your identity, your login and password directly to I can get into your into your device quite directly. And there is another form of this, the more, you know, where you, they don't send you out to a link, but there's an attachment in that email. You open the attachment and now there's all kinds of things I can do with that. And, and we know that this works uh, in a lot of companies and a lot of places because and I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I, I now, within the space of, I'd say, six to nine months, have been offered one of those free cybersecurity audit packages because of some right. big com bank or life insurance company, one of each in my case, w where they got hacked. I, I'm at the point where I'm saying, I think I already I activated that yep. the last time. Yep. Yep. And, and, and you are, you know, I wrote an article on this, uh, which... Talked about what the status of all the well, here's what happened, right? I, originally, about a decade, about a half decade ago, I was writing about the need to inform people when there's a hack because there was no policy about it. So now there is policy, and the problem is because every state has some mandate, the lawyers got involved. And in a sense, a lot of this is the legal system working out, which is ensuring that they don't have the liability, they give you some credit protection. Now, what does that credit protection really do? Each of you know, each and every one of all my family members have it. I'm sure everybody's now got credit <laughs> monitoring of some sort. And and what does it all amount to? Really, nothing. 
It's just, okay, we, we took care of you, now we're done. Yeah. Uh, to me, uh, this is like giving somebody a fire extinguisher after the fire is burned on, burned on their house. And that's kind of like the, the, the paradigm in which we are. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't do much. Now your data is out there and you really don't know what data is out there because no one really tells you. Um, while we're on the subject of that kind of thing, um, does it, so the big companies like Microsoft and Apple, they do have, if you look around, these things, it, it'll say, for example, if you receive a suspicious email or SMS text message that looks like it's supposed to be from Apple, please report it to reportfishing at apple.com. Uh, and there's a there's another one for a, a suspicious FaceTime call. That's like a separate thing that you're, you can report to Apple. I mean, so you could tell the teacher, right? Is that doing That's anything? Right. Right. It doesn't do anything because we don't know where it's even going. Yeah. Right. And every one of these things are, you know, again, the whole paradigm of using suspicion as a trigger was something I started with my book uh, because we talk about that as an important trigger. But you got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Today, our, our, our approach to security, you know, I, I you know, I. It's like old school sex education. You know, I went to a parochial school uh, back in the 70s. And, you know, in, in the parochial school system, you know, sex had, you know, first the, the priest would come and say why not to do something. Then the doctor or nurse would come and say how not to do something. And then the principal would come and say where not to do something. Um, and that's what we're doing today, right? You have a security expert who comes and tells you, you know, why not to do it. You have the IT manager coming and telling you how not to do it. You have the CISOs, the security information officers, and the tech companies coming and saying where not to do something. That's all there is. After that, everything is a black box. You report it. It goes somewhere. We don't know where. Um, We don't know who to turn to. Most people don't know who to turn to if you have a ransomware attack. And those attacks are happening for small businesses and households too, right? And as the world becomes increasingly contentious, uh, all of these nations are starting to go back to their old ways of hacking and reaching and looking for money. And the American consumer is is the cash cow for all of this. We're going to take a quick break here. Uh, we have so much more to tell you. Uh, we will continue talking to Arun Vish- uh, Vishwanath, uh, a cybersecurity expert, author of the book, The Weakest Link, How to Diagnose, Detect, uh, and Defend Users from Phishing. We'll be back. You want to tie it up your dog? It's just plain old gone fishing. There's a sign upon your door. Pops, don't blab it around, will you? Gone fishing. Keep it shady. I got me a big one staked out. Mm, you ain't working anymore. I don't have to work. I got me a piece of Gary. Cows need milking in the barn. I have the twins on that detail. They each take a side. But you just don't give a darn. Give four bits of cow and hand lotion. You just never seem to learn. Man, you taught me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. 
trust the wrong people The circle's complete The ending's so bitter The start so sweet My heart has its reasons Well, we all trust the wrong people sometimes. Uh, and uh, here to explain to us why that happens and what we are going to do about it to become a different kind of person is Arun Vishwanath, a cybersecurity expert, author of the book, The Weakest Link, How to Diagnose, Detect, and Defend Users from Phishing. So, Arun, sort of right there in the title of your book is kind of a suggestion that we can pretty easily decode, The Weakest Link. It's not that we don't get enough training. Uh, it's not maybe that we don't own the right hardware. It's people, right? People are the weak, weakest link. Explain why that is the case. That's right. See, you know, the endpoint is never a tool, right? It's it's the case with anything we look at, right? The endpoint, when we think of t- computing, you know, we think of endpoints as, as computers. The endpoint is never a computer. The computer is a tool. It's no different than, let's say, a knife, right? In the hands of the wrong person, even a knife is very dangerous. And so in the same way, People, at the end of the day, no matter how much AI we build into it, how many security platforms and protocols we build into it, the endpoint will always be a person. And it always has been historically. Uh, The only difference now is now the scams are coming from everywhere in the world, and it's targeting us from many different apps and security, many different apps and services that we use online. So the vulnerabilities are just, have has always been there. And one of the problems is we have never taken the time to figure out the why. Why are people vulnerable? And that's what you know I dwell with. And there's a lot of science on this. I mean, it, the point of the of writing the book was to basically say, hey, you know what? Here's what we already know. We have almost you know 50 years of social science research. The last 20 of that, which has looked at technology and security behavior and how people think and how people act online, and we can bring all of that to bear uh, to actually figure out a way to understand why someone's falling for a fish and, and or falling for a social engineering attack. And, and like you just said in the earlier examples, right, everyone has different reasons for it. Some of it has got to do with the attack and some of it has got to do with the person. And and that intersection is not very hard to to to, to explore and understand and to quantify. One thing I'm, I think is uh, I'm pretty sure is true is that you have sent phishing tests, test emails to people within 24 hours after they've received training, cybersecurity training, right. <laughs> and they click That's on them right. anyway, right? That's correct, right? Oh, absolutely. And and we have known this since, you know, going back to even the early 2000s, the Army did some of this work, the Army Cyber Institute in 2004 and seven. they published a series of papers. They had all these cadets uh, who went through training and, you know, literally a day later, they all fell for it because it's, it's a very short term impact. Right. I mean, any training for that matter, if it and the, and the other issue is what are we training people on? Right. We talk, we call it security awareness. Are we not aware of phishing? Like I said, everybody everywhere in the world is aware of it. It's not an awareness issue, um, nor is it just a knowledge issue, because how much knowledge are we going to give people? Right. right? And I think it's, also it's, that we, we should say, and I think you yeah. believe this, too. That another problem with training is training. Uh, we're all we have to go through so much training, and we're starting to game the training, right? When, if I have to go through a, right. a work training thing, my first question that I ask myself is, how many of these things can I can I go up and make a cup of coffee right. or something while it's running, you know, and it thinks I'm there? Can I fast forward through this? Can I hit an escape? Whatever it is, the whole idea is to get through it, get your certificate of completion. It's I mean, in- increasingly for the employee, it's not about receiving the training. That's right. And if you're working in the federal government, for instance, I mean, there's training fatigue. You get trained all the time and you make a mistake and they train you even more. It's punitive. 
Um, it's it's just not something that works and doesn't work the way it's supposed to because it's never taken into account what the patient suffers from. It's like going to the physician and you walk into the office and they throw a pill at you and they keep throwing it at you every time you come by, even though you're coming sicker every time or you're completely, you don't even believe you have an illness. Why would you take the pill? So let's so, let's talk about these yeah. people. Let's talk about the people. So yeah. one of the things that you're you focus in on is what is sometimes called the Dunning Kruger effect. This is the thing where eighty uh, percent of Frenchmen say they are above average lovers, uh, which doesn't seem like it could be possible. Uh, and um, and Daniel Kahneman, the expert on, on cognitive biases, says that human overconfidence is possibly the most ineradicable bias. Uh, just the the belief we have that we're a little bit better at whatever it is than we actually are. How does that affect you in your field? Right. So there's two different things, right? So one is this idea of confidence and overconfidence. Uh, to me, you know, confidence is a great argument to make, but it's a very hard thing. It's, it always works retrospectively, right? From a measurement point of view, from an understanding point of view, it's, it's harder to quantify confidence till something bad happens. You know, uh, if you think about, uh, you know, the, the sub-explosion that happened recently, um, you know, we don't call them, you know, when before uh, the sub went down, everybody called the CEO of, of the company, you know, uh, an innovator. And after the accident, everybody said, well, he was overconfident. Um, you know, confidence is a very tricky thing. I prefer to look at things like what we have done is looked at things like cyber risk beliefs, right? What is the belief system? How are you orienting to technology? Um, and that's one part of the answer, right? So for instance, if I ask you, hey, you know, uh, you got an email um, without anything in it, uh, or rather you got a PDF uh, as an attachment in an email, is that safer to open than a Word document? And invariably, your mind comes up with an answer. And I've done these surveys all over the world. And the answer usually is, uh, what do you think it is? Tell me. It's, it's a question. So the question there is, what do you think is safer? Is it a PDF or a Word document? Oh, well, I, actually, I don't think one of them is safer than the other. I, I think <laughs> That's the right answer. Yeah, I See, think, you got it. I think people, right? people you, think PDFs right? are safer because they can't be edited. People think PDFs are safer, right? And there's a lot of these things. For instance, you know, if you ask somebody... Uh, is it safer to open an email attachment on your phone as against opening on a computer? Um, I think the answer there is no, because most part of this, I, I didn't know any of this 24 hours ago. I've been preparing for this show. <laughs> but um, but a lot of the stuff on your computer is end-to-end -end encrypted, whereas I don't think your phone is at all. Right. Or, or let's look at something even simpler, right? What's safer to, to, to open an SMS, what is more secure? Is it an SMS text that you receive on your phone or something that's on Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp? Even though I get tons of crap on Facebook messengers uh, telling me, in fact, in fact, to click on things and find these photos, the kind of thing we were just talking about before, I believe actually it, it is still safer than SMS. I don't think SMS right. has a lot of protection. Right. And, so, and so you notice that when we do these surveys, it gets to an understanding of how you're thinking about technology, how we orient to risk, right? So each of these are risk beliefs, right? So people invariably think PDFs are safer. And why, when you ask them? Or, or that SMS is safer or more secure. And when you ask them why, it's usually because, hey, I can't do something with it. I can't edit it. <laughs> right, not with the other right. person. Sure. There's somebody else who can do that, though. That's right. That's right. Because it, But editing it has nothing to do with, with, with having malware in it. So, so, so this is a very common orientation issue, right? So that's your risk beliefs. And that tends to kind of make you either go very cavalier when you get something on a certain device 
or be very suspicious. So now your one aspect of it is just that, which is what are your risk beliefs? And we can measure it. We can quantify it. It's better than confidence, which is always retrospective, um, which is always like a great explanation after the fact. This is very easy to quantify. Um, but that's one part of it, right? The other part of it is, um, you know, what are the kind of, you know, this is going back to Kahneman's work, right? What kind of heuristics do people use? What kind of mental shortcuts do they use? Um, and then the third part of it is habits, right? A lot of things we do happens on a non-conscious basis, like the example you gave me, right? Of your own example, which is you're just responding to an email. You're not really thinking through it. And usually it's, you know, a device leads to it, a time of the day does it. Yeah, and I, I think in that case, some other cognitive biases kicked in. It was from my boss. It was from the CEO of this place. And so I'm I'm not in the habit of ignoring the CEO of this place when he tells right. me I need something right now. Now, when he texted me a little bit later and it turned out what he wanted was gift cards, I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not the Mark Contreras <laughs> I know. He would never ask me for gift cards. But but um, but at first, and, and yeah. notice that the wait a minute point is your suspicion now starting to get triggered, and that's one of the reasons why we use suspicion as like this catch-all measure, and we say, okay, if suspicion gets triggered, notice what happens immediately. You start going through the oh wait a minute, I got to think this through. You start looking for the nuances, and invariably, when suspicion is triggered, people give more attention. Now they may catch it if they have the right kind of beliefs and you know supportive knowledge, or they may completely miss it. And why, if they do miss it, now we know what to train them on. Okay, so uh, we're running out of time, and I want to get to the CRI. This is this is your instrument. This is your idea, is don't study the scams, study the people who are being scammed. And so how do you study them, and how do you help them? Well, the way we do this is we, we basically do a phishing pen test. We do the exact same kind of test, what the fishers, bad guys do. We do this in a contained environment within organizations. And then we give them a metric, a score, which we call a cyber risk index, which ranges from zero to 100 about, you know, how much of a risk they, they pose to the organization based on their reaction to that attack. And we also allow you, what we do is we try to assess and diagnose where that risk comes from. So it's not just enough sending people phishing pen tests, which now, you know, all of us get you know, through our organizational IT. It's about saying, okay, what is the reason why I fell for this? Was it a risk belief? Was it, you know, something from Kahneman's work, like a like a, a heuristic? Is it a bad habit? Because every one of is is a combination of these factors, and what combination? Because once I know it, I can diagnose it. it. It is the basis of medical science, right? That's how doctors diagnose it. They ask you questions, and they find out exactly what's ailing you, and then we give them the medication that they need, not just doling them whatever the IT guys or somebody out there says. Hey, yeah. You know, this is what you suffer from. Go ahead and take the pills. So that's what the cyber risk index does. Gives you a score, like a credit score, which the organization can take and run with. Right. So it's the opposite of the way we do everything right now. I think what we do right now, I mean, I only work for one corporation, but uh, but I, I teach at another one. So, And I think the assumption is treat everybody the same. Um, every, right. Everybody's exactly got the same risk. Uh, Clark up in accounting and, and Joanne uh, down in facilities, uh, and they're all the same. <laughs> Give them the same That's training right. and treat them the same way. And you're saying, no, you really almost have to kind of discriminate based on how much risk they pose. That's right. And discriminate on the type of risk they pose, right? So if someone has a bad habit, we have a way of changing habits that will work on them. And it'll be much more, you know, it's, it's lower cost and it's less effort because uh, Colin doesn't have to go through it or Arun doesn't have to go through that because he doesn't need it. Um, on the other hand, if what you lack is knowledge, then I'll give you some knowledge 
and then not give it to the other person because they don't need it. And, and by doing that, you come up with a smarter, you know, more nimble training platform program and, and you fix the problem. The problem right now with, with IT security awareness is it's not a fix to the problem. It's a continuation. Ever ask an IT security, you know, awareness company, uh, what happens when we're all aware? And it's usually silence. So uh, we're effectively out of time right now, but I'd be remiss if we didn't just quickly touch on this. It's also an arms race. Uh, and, and so tomorrow or a year from now, let's imagine that you and I actually know each other. Uh, I'll get a call uh, and it's from Maroon. And there he is. It's a FaceTime call. There's his face. There's his voice. He goes, hey, we've got a real opportunity here, but I need you to I need a deposit from you right now. Boom, boom, boom. And I'm thinking, well, this is one of the smartest guys I know. And it's his face and it's his voice. I got to get him get him this money so he can make a killing. That's I mean, AI has already done that. Right. I mean, we have cases all, already right. where exactly that has happened. That's exactly. We demonstrated some of this at Black Hat this year. We had a paper where we used AI to generate phishing attacks. Uh, and what we found is, again, the endpoint is not AI. The endpoint is the hacker, the person making it. And we can use different models and build really good attacks, very persuasive in real time. Um, how do we stop that? Uh, we stop that by changing how people orient to email. Right. This is why we need to fix the users, because the computing programs are going to keep on changing. The endpoint is going to be the person. We have got to get to understanding people. Once we do that, we can change almost every, we can we can stop most of these attacks once we understand the person who's looking at that attack and why it is that they're not recognized. A healthy dose of suspicion. We can inject that into the process. Uh, we can come up with mechanisms to improve cyber hygiene so that even if you do end up opening that email and clicking on a link, there are enough protections in the back end. So it's a combination of those two things that's going to protect us into the future. Yeah. Right now, we're sort of driving around in cars that have no jack to fix the flat tire and no first aid kit and stuff like that. And that's right. We're sort of talking that's about right. that. And we have, a, we have a fire extinguisher after the fire is burnt out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Arun Vishwanath, cybersecurity expert, author of the book, The Weakest Link, How to Diagnose, Detect, and Defend Users from Phishing. Coming up in our next segment, what if you got to the end of your labor of love? And that would be a novel that you'd written, a manuscript, or you were almost all the way done with it, but not quite done with it, and somebody stole it. How could that even happen? We'll tell you. Make sure you never miss the Colin McEnroe Show by subscribing to or following our podcast on any app. It is free. The senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, whose boss is Katie Tolarski, whose boss is Tim Rasmussen, whose boss is Mark Contreras, who reports to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know why. Back to the show. And that was Cat Pastor uh, talking there. And Cat Pastor is the technical producer of this show. Uh, and uh, this particular episode was uh, produced by McCusker. Uh, formerly known as Carolyn McCusker, but we rebranded her. Uh, all right. We are now going to talk to Peter C. Baker. Peter C. Baker is the author of the novel uh, Planes, uh, the wonderful novel Planes, not the one that was published in Mongolia. Uh, 
<laughs> and, and, and falls apart when you actually buy the book. And, you know, not that one, the really good version of Planes. Uh, so Peter C. Baker is here to tell us about oh, how he was part of a pretty well publicized um, hack or theft or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, welcome to our show. Hello. Hi. So you were working on this novel. It was a labor of love. It was something that you really had focused a tremendous amount of your energies on. Uh, and uh, you hadn't, I believe, quite completed the draft, but mostly. And suddenly you started getting some urgent messages from your agent. Why don't you pick up the story from there? Yeah, I had not quite finished the novel, but I'd finished it enough to get an agent. And we were sort of polishing it up together and making a plan to sort of bring it to market and hopefully get it published. And I, one morning, have an email from him or an email that appears to be from him. And it says, can you send over a copy of the novel as a word file? Uh, I don't I don't seem to have it. And I thought that was a little strange. Uh, my agent is a pretty organized, responsible guy, but I was also pretty sympathetic, you know, <clears throat> You switch computers, you have a million things floating around in your inbox. You don't have what you need. Sometimes the easiest way to get it is just to get it again from the relevant person. And, you know, it was a period of anxiety in my life of being nervous about how this process was going to go and wanting to sort of do my part to the max at every step. And, and, and so, to compound things a little bit, too, you had a little kid in the house uh, and you weren't getting a lot of sleep. Yes, that's right. I my son was just slightly over two months old. Um, so I was in sort of getting to the day and sort of zombie coffee mode, <laughs> super fried. Didn't think much about it. Uh, dug up an email that already had my novel attached as a word file and forwarded that to my agent. Then I hear back and he says, oh, doesn't seem to have come through. Could you send it again? And I did it again for all the same reasons, <laughs> uh, wanting to be helpful, being fried out of my mind um, and not applying a ton of scrutiny to what really appeared to be an email from my agent. If looking in the from field, it was my not just my agent's name, but also his email address. The email signature was his email signature. He was making reference to my novel by name, which not a lot of people knew. And what else? I want to think well, of more. Well, I mean, the ones that you're doing are really good right now. And I could use my recently acquired Arun Vishwanath training to say, yes, so this is a trusted source. This is your agent, somebody that you you trust a lot. Also, yeah. you're tired. You're not thinking that clearly. You're not maybe as suspicious or hyper alert as you could be. And you're also, you just said too, you're kind of invested. First of all, you've got a habit. Your habit is your agent wants something, you send it to your agent, and you're pretty invested in this process now. You want to bring it to fruition. So you're also motivated to do the thing that you're being asked to do. The only missing piece here is you don't quite understand who is asking you to do this thing that you are motivated to do. Right. Or so far, I just assume it's my agent. Yeah. Now is when it gets kind of bad and when I get kind of embarrassed recounting it because my agent or this person who I believe to be my agent then wrote to me a third time saying, oh, it still hasn't come through and then said something that I've gone back and looked at since that it's 
it doesn't make that much sense about how the agency is switching servers. So uh, things aren't coming through. Could I send it to this other email address that is exactly the same, you know, my agent's name at hisagency.com, but could I make it .co, taking the M off? Mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, all of these factors you just identified, uh, being fried, being anxious, wanting to please, having got into this loop where I assumed I was um, communicating with my agent. So I then I then sent it a third time to this other address. Um, and a little bit after that, I got an email from my agent, actually my agent, mm -hmm. saying, oh, why have you just forwarded me your novel as a, as a word file, which I obviously already have not once, but twice. Yes. Um, and then, you know, my heart sort of starts feeling funny. Right. That was, this is when you go, row. row. Uh, yes. And so it turns out you were part of something that wound up being a fairly high, highly publicized phenomenon. It, you were not the only person that this happened to, if that's, you know, gives you any solace. Uh, and it became, call, it became known as the Filippo Bernardini scandal. It took a while to figure, piece all this together. Because the other question is, I mean, you know, I've been a professional writer in my life. The idea that somebody wants to steal my stuff <laughs> is actually kind of flattering. It's like, I can't get anybody to read my stuff legitimately. You want to steal it from me. But it turns out there was somebody who had a kind of peculiar motivation to do this. Yes, which I think remains something of a mystery. But uh, there's this guy, Filippo Bernardini. He had worked in publishing uh for years he was he wasn't very old but he'd been working in publishing for years and by all accounts and indicators uh was pretty frustrated by his experience in publishing he hadn't become sort of a big shot as quickly as he thought he deserved and so he had embarked on this scheme uh endpoint still sort of unknown i think uh maybe even to him i don't know uh to trick as many authors, agents, and editors as possible into sending him manuscripts for not yet sold books. And this affected uh, Ethan Hawke eventually confirmed that it was confirmed that Ethan Hawke had uh, been targeted and Margaret Atwood. I mean, think about uh, that. She She's the one who creates these dystopian landscapes where suddenly all the credit cards of women, you know, in an entire country are canceled. <laughs> if anybody should have their antennae up, it would be Margaret Atwood. But she got I'm not sure too. she fell for it, but I know she was targeted. She was targeted. And, okay. and, uh, but it's generally not known who targets were because uh, most people who were targeted in my experience of sort of chatting with some of them behind the scenes and off the record, uh, just didn't want to be identified as having been fooled. Yeah. I mean, dupe and, doesn't look good on your, on your resume. Um, no, and, and agents themselves didn't want to be associated with it and so on and so on. So, I mean, before we run out of time here, ultimately, you know, your story has a happy ending. I mean, despite what I was saying before, there is no Mongolian edition of Planes. Nothing particularly bad happened. Do I have that right? That's right. I mean, it's not like he came into my, it's not like it was 1950s and I had a typewritten manuscript and he came into my house and stole it and I didn't have it anymore. I still, mm -hmm. I still had the book and I was still able to get a deal and the book was published. Um, and as far as I know, it has my 
sales, which are not especially high, have not been impacted by, you know, piracy on whatever the streets of, of Moscow or anywhere else. Yeah. No, I was, I was not offered a copy of your book on Canal Street. Um, <laughs> so an odd part of this in, in the way maybe of the Robin Hood or maybe just there's a real new kind of internet, you know, sociopathic panache that certain people acquire. There did start to be kind of a little bit of a cult of Filippo Bernardini, right? People kind of got into what he did. Yeah, I think um, people, you know, anyone who has worked uh, sort of job low and the corporate prestige ladder, uh, I think has some degree of sympathy for someone else who's had frustration in a similar role. And online, in the way that things can be kind of half a joke and half serious online, there was some amount of sort of cheerleading uh, for Filippo Bernardini and people were selling um, hats, I think it was, hat, you know, publishing scammer hats and sort of cheering for this guy who who saw through it all and was able to pull everyone's everyone's strings um, despite having a having a low ranking position. Right. Um, I, I can sympathize with that. Yeah. I mean, I think there is there's an appetite for disruption uh, and disruption of the order and sticking it to anybody who seems to have more power than somebody else, and it manifests yes. itself in especially, lots especially of for pub- publishing, which is yes. pretty up pretty up there in terms of its reliance on uh, you know low paid high right. labor jobs. I, I just want to say if it makes you feel any better, the first book I ever published was published by Doubleday, and there was a pirate t- sh- t-shirt version of the cover of my book, which was hilarious because my book wasn't really selling right. that many copies. Uh, but the the cover looked cool, and I just wanted the t-shirt. I said, somebody get me the t-shirt. Where is it? Who's selling it? I just want one. But the artist, Stephen Guarnacci, he was not uh, pleased about that. So I, this is And this is before the internet existed. This was in the 80s. So... Yeah. So, I mean, just very quickly, because we're, we're, well, we're effectively out of time. In, in 10 words, it's not like you wish this guy would be in a Supermax uh, facility, right? No, I don't. And I was happy that he ended up uh, basically just doing time served in the end. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not happy exactly, but I thought that was fine. All right. Well, Peter C. Baker is the author uh, of the novel Planes. Uh, He has quite an adventure story to go along with being the author of Planes. Thank you for sharing that with us today. The rest of you, thank you so much for listening.